Good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Daniel, for leading us in our service. Well, the best way to follow the sermon is really to have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 5. And if you find it helpful to have an outline before you to follow the sermon, please download our e-bulletin on our website that will give you uh, the structure of our sermon today. You know, a few weeks ago when I was preaching here, I shared about the unexpected birth of my son, Adriel, in Sydney, Australia. As a quick recap, or for those who are not here, my wife, Mason, was bumped to a birth centre because the delivery wards were full. Now, a birth centre in Australia simulates the home where babies are born without medical intervention. So there's no epidural administer, there are no doctors around. Right? And furthermore, the husband is supposed to help deliver the baby. Now, I'll give you the details of what's going to what, come, what came next after that, right? Now, so we were ushered into a room uh, that looked like a normal bedroom. There was no medical equipment, no hospital beds. Uh, however, there was a wooden frame king-size bed in there, and that's all there is. And as far as I could remember, the only lights were those bedside, you know, warm, warm light lamps, right? But whatever it is, the, the room was just very dim with those table lamps. And then Mason's contractions became uh, more frequent and the pain increased. Now, the only thing I could do as a husband uh, was just to, you know, tell, tell her, encourage her, you know, pray for her, stand beside her. But I couldn't do much after that. And then the pain got intense. So intense that she couldn't even stand. And it seems like the baby is coming out. Oh no, what should I do? Right? I had no idea what to do. I wasn't training that, right? So I went out of the room looking for help, but there was no one there. And furthermore, no lights were turned on at the nursing station. No lights were on at the corridor. The only lights that I saw were the same dim lights coming out from those few occupied rooms. Now, I dare not venture too far out, lest I enter a room that I shouldn't and I get bashed up by somebody. So I just shouted, Hello! Anyone there? We need help! And then there was no reply. (laughs) And the only sound I heard was, Ah! Ah! Now, those are the screams of all the pregnant ladies, right? Now, honestly, if I heard whipping sound or metal chains, I would have concluded that this is a torture house instead of a birth center. But anyway, I went back and forth a few times, encouraging Mason, ah, come on, oh, and uh, desperately calling out for help above all the screaming there. And finally, finally, the midwife came. Oh. Right, the first thing she did was to scold me. Right, <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know. She expected me to know what to do and to help with the delivery. Of course, she didn't know that we were bumped. Huh? She then gave me instructions to lay the mats on the floor, how to position Mason, how to position myself, and by the grace of God, Adriel was delivered in the end. All right? Praise the Lord. Now, the midwife really saved the day. Now, you cannot imagine how happy and relieved I was to meet her. I didn't care if she scolded me or not. I, didn't, I can't even remember what else she said. But I knew nothing. I was at my wit's end. She was there to meet my desperate need. 
You see, in our passage today, we read about different people meeting Jesus. What happens when people meet Jesus? What difference will it make? See, with the right conditions, meeting Jesus would be life-saving and life-changing. And this is what we will look at today. What happens when people meet Jesus? Now, the first group of people we will be looking at were the first disciples of Jesus. What happens when the disciples meet Jesus? Well, firstly, sinners become servants. As Jesus became more well-known, people were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Now, at that time, Jesus was teaching by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. You know, unlike famous people, singers and movie stars nowadays, Jesus does not have a group of bodyguards around him to form a bubble. So in order to maintain space and not to be pushed into the water, Jesus sat in uh, Simon Peter's boat and told him to pull out a little bit from the land. I guess this might be the first floating platform concept right, in the world. After he had uh, finished teaching, after speaking, he asked Peter to pull out even further, deeper into the sea, uh, and then he asked Peter and the others with him to let down their nets you know, for a catch. Now, if you are a professional fisherman like Peter, you'll be wondering, what can this son of a carpenter tell me about fishing, right? And furthermore, Peter and his friend toyed hard the night before, which is actually the best time to fish. All those who are fishermen will know, uh, nighttime is the best time to fish. And they had come up empty. Now Jesus wanted them to fish at the last favorable time in the day. Now in normal circumstances, nobody will listen to him. See, no offense to anyone, it will be like asking me to teach someone math. I never taught my kids math. Right? A school teacher to advise people on an investment or for an artist to fix a computer. Now if you are old enough to take a taxi about 10, 20 years ago, you will know that no taxi driver wants you to tell them which way to go. Nonetheless, Peter addressing Jesus respectfully and humbly as master, obeyed with the rest to let down their nets. And what was the result of this humility? They had such a big catch that the nets were breaking and they had to ask for help from another boat. And the catch was so big that it filled up both boats and they began to sink. How did Peter respond to such a big catch? Huara! No, he didn't say that. He's not Singaporean, right? He didn't say huara. Verse 8 tells us that Peter bowed down before Jesus and asked Jesus to depart from him. He knew that this miraculous catch can only be a work of God. Hence, Peter recognized his unworthy position before God, or at least before an agent of God. Hence, we see Peter there recognizing his unworthy position before God, and that is substantiated by his honest and humble confession of being a sinful person before God. And furthermore, you will notice that Peter now addressed Jesus as the Lord instead 
of master. Now that's either addressing Jesus as God himself or more likely someone superior as God's representative or agent. Jesus was no ordinary man and no ordinary teacher. In response, Jesus was gentle, gentle by calming his fears. See, Jesus does not reject sinners when they come to him humbly. But that's not all. Jesus told Peter that he would be catching men instead of fish from then on. Now, what does catching men mean? Well, it's to share in the work and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The significance of that is that God can involve sinners in his mission and his purposes. As one of the theologians says, Daryl Bock says, God transforms sinners to servants. If sinners humble themselves before God, God can transform them to be instruments of his to rescue people. In fact, humility before God is one of the prerequisites for service. You know, we often get uh, calls from others, you know, either friends or colleagues, you know, join activity, do a task together, attend an event. And uh, there may be many factors to consider, but the person who calls or invites you is a very important factor, isn't it? See, the more important the person, the chance of a positive response from you is higher. See, you may not turn up for the wedding of an acquaintance, but you will turn up for the wedding of your child, your siblings, your best friend, and even your boss, right? You will try to change all your appointments, you will take leave, you will, you will drop all other things to turn up. And here we have Jesus the Lord, the one who made this miraculous catch, calling Peter and his friends to follow him. Verse 11 tells us that Peter and his friends left everything and followed Jesus. See, the immediate leaving behind of everything showed that their profession and their priorities have changed. It involved changing their profession, leaving behind their nets and boats, and even the very miraculous catch they just had. They received and responded to the gracious calling and invitation to follow Jesus in God's mission. See, God and Jesus will guide them to an even more precious catch in the book of Acts. Now, we all know this is a unique call for Peter, probably even James and John, who will eventually include the rest of the 12 apostles. They were to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, and in particular, his words and his works in private and in public. But nevertheless, they are, in a way, models of what it means to be disciples, models of what it means to be servants of Jesus. See, as a follower of Jesus, there must be a new priority in life. For some of us, it may be to live our profession, to use our gifts and our life to catch people in a full-time paid capacity. Well, that may not be for everyone. However, as followers of Jesus, we still 
have the responsibility and the mission to catch people for Christ in whatever capacity we find ourselves in. So what is clear is that there must be a new orientation to life. No longer must anything or anyone else become our utmost priority and focus. It will not be our hobbies, our academic pursuits, our careers, our friendships, our parents, and not even your spouse. They must be left behind in that sense. So the question for us is, what have you not left behind? What has taken priority over following Jesus and doing His will? What happens when people meet Jesus? First, these sinners become servants of God if they would humble themselves to follow Jesus. Secondly, the leper can be healed and restored. See, verse 12 tells us that when Jesus was in one of the cities, still in the Galilean area, a man full of leprosy fell on his face and begged Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy in the Bible refers to all sorts of skin diseases and not necessarily limited to Hansen's disease, which we are familiar with and greatly feared in the past. However, this man was described to be full of leprosy. That might suggest that his leprosy, his skin problem, was either fairly serious or it has spread all over his body. Now, according to Old Testament law in Leviticus 13, someone who is infected with leprosy is considered unclean. He must wear torn clothes and let his hair down, and wherever he goes, he has to shout, Unclean! Unclean! And furthermore, he must live alone outside of the community. In other words, he becomes a social outcast who is avoided by everyone. Of course, the law's intention is not to let the disease spread. Nonetheless, it is a terrible thing to contract leprosy. Hardly anyone recovers from it in the Old Testament. And that's why last week when you talk about Naaman, it was such a big deal that the Syrian army commander was healed of his leprosy by Elisha. Now, it is often considered an act of God to be healed of leprosy. As such, it is rather commendable and risky of this leper to approach Jesus. He was socially ostracized, right, and, uh, and he came out before Jesus in the public square. It showed that he was really desperate for help, desperate enough to cry out to Jesus despite being an outcast. And his posture before Jesus showed his humility. He fell on his face and begged Jesus to heal him. Now, how many of us here will do that even when we are desperate for help? I didn't beg the midwife when I was desperate. I fell on my knees only to receive the baby. But it was different for this leper. Not only was he desperate and humble, he also had the faith that Jesus had the ability to heal him. 
Now the only question is whether Jesus was willing to heal and hence he fell before Jesus and begged in desperation for him to do so. Jesus then stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now there are a few things we can learn about Jesus through this healing. Well, firstly, Jesus truly has the authority and the ability to heal. The leper was healed of his leprosy immediately, showing Jesus' power and authority over almost an incurable disease at the time. But secondly, the healing showed that Jesus is compassionate. See, his willingness to, to heal is already evidence of that compassion. But the way he heals was further evidence of that. Jesus could have healed the leper without touching him, right? Surely Jesus had the power to say, be healed and it will be good enough. But Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. By touching the leper, Jesus displayed his compassion and his care for the man and was not merely just showing off his power to heal all his immunity to being unclean. You know, during COVID-19 pandemic, the healthcare workers were avoided like a plague. They were not, I mean, their healthcare workers are not even the patients. And we heard stories of people avoiding, if not ostracizing them. They were at times scolded on public transport. Other times, they were refused rides in taxis and hired cars. Well, understandably, there was great fear among all of us. Now, there were, you can imagine that would be like how people treated the lepers at the time. Nobody will go near them in fear of being infected or being classified as unclean. Yet Jesus touched this leper. He was compassionate and more than willing to help him. See, Jesus' care and compassion was also shown in his instruction for the healed a leper to show himself to the priest and to make an offering. See, on one hand, it was to prove that God's power through Jesus has done this miraculous healing. But on the other hand, it was in compliance with the law as stipulated in Leviticus 14. Now, the purpose of this examination by the priest and the offering was not only to certify that this man was truly healed, but it was also for the purpose of restoring this man back into society, back to the community. In a way, it is also to restore the relationship with God because now he can go to the temple and continue his worship. See, the lesson from this encounter is simple. Jesus will help those who see their need. Those who are desperate would humble themselves and call out to Jesus for help. And in this case, the leper was healed, the unclean was cleansed, and the outcast was restored. Now, while not all physical healing will happen at this point in salvation history, Jesus showed that he can and is willing to bring healing and restoration to the broken, to the isolated, and the suffering when they humble themselves before him. What happens when people meet Jesus? First, these sinners become servants of God. Secondly, the leper can be healed and restored if they recognize their need and come humbly to seek Jesus for help. 
But thirdly, the paralytic can be healed and forgiven of his sins. Now, it was almost a, exactly a year ago when a chapel service at Osbury University in the United States continued for days and weeks. The large number of students gathered for a prolonged time of fervent worship and prayer. And what looked like a revival of sorts attracted not only American Christians, but also Christians from different parts of the world to check it out. I've heard of people even from Singapore who bought a ticket just to go there and to check out the situation. And now, in our in passage today, Jesus was the new religious phenomenon. By this time, Jesus had gained enough reputation for the Pharisees and the scribes of the law to come to check him out. The HQ in Jerusalem thinks that it is worthwhile to send some of their fellows to suss him out. And Jesus was in the house when the men were trying to bring a paralytic on a stretcher of sorts to him. Now, they were presumably seeking for Jesus to heal this uh, paralyzed man. However, they could not find a way to the house because it was too crowded. Undeterred, this man went up to the roof, dug a hole, and lowered the paralytic to Jesus. Now, if you see in a picture of a reconstructed Jewish house at the time, it was typically two-story high, and the flat roof is made of clay, thorns, and reeds. You know, laid over wooden beams. So it was quite possible for people to break through the inches of clay that forms the roof. Now, some houses may have a ladder of sorts, you know, even or stairs outside the house for people to climb up to the roof, unlike what we have here. But verse 20 tells us that Jesus recognized the faith of these men as they persevered in creating a way to lower the man down from the roof. They believed that Jesus had the power to heal. Their persistent, visible action is the expression of their faith. However, Jesus did the unexpected. Instead of healing the man immediately, Jesus proclaimed that the man's sins, the man's sins have been forgiven. And the directness of Jesus' claim was particularly offensive to the Pharisees and the scribes. For Jesus wasn't just speaking on behalf of God. He was proclaiming forgiveness onto the person himself. Now imagine you are sick and you went to the GP and the GP says to you, your sins are forgiven. You would think that either he's mad or it's rather ridiculous, if not irrelevant. Now, it's unclear whether Jesus was referring to specific sins of the paralytic or sins as part of the fallen world. Nevertheless, Jesus' pronouncement showed that humanity's deepest need is the forgiveness of sin. Our biggest problem is not war, is not sickness, but sin. One can be healed, but not forgiven, which will ultimately be futile. One who is forgiven and may not be healed in this life, but will surely be made whole at the end. So Jesus was possibly using this opportunity to teach the crowds, 
as well as those visiting Pharisees about this. In response, the Pharisees and the scribes questioned their hearts about Jesus' identity. At this point, these questions were all the Pharisees' private conversations, but Jesus knew them. They got something right and they got something wrong. They were right to think that only God can forgive sins. However, they got Jesus' identity wrong in thinking that he was merely a man. As such, they judged that Jesus was blaspheming by pronouncing forgiveness of sin, which only God can do. So knowing their private conversation, their thoughts, Jesus asked them a question in verse 23. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Now note that the comparative question is which is easier to say, not which is easier to do. So one way to understand this is that it's easier to pronounce forgiveness of sin than to heal a man. Why is that so? It is because it is impossible, impossible to prove that someone's sin is, for, is forgiven. Now in Singlish, it will be like, say only ma, how can you prove? Right? Anybody can say it. I say forgiveness, you are forgiven. Say only ma. Right? But forgiveness of sin is harder to do, but easier to say comparatively. On the other hand, to tell a paralytic to walk is slightly harder to say because it is verifiable. If the paralytic cannot get up and walk, it will be clear that his pronouncement or healing is bobake, means no count. Right? In any case, Jesus was linking both of these hard-to-say and hard-to-do things together. The logic is, is that if Jesus can do one of these hard tasks that's, that, is, uh, that is verifiable, he can do the other which is not. Jesus then healed the man to substantiate his claim to forgive sin. The healing was instantaneous, which further affirms Jesus' authority not just to heal, but also to forgive. Now you will notice that Jesus was rather cryptic in verse 24. Now Jesus didn't say, I have the authority to forgive sin. Instead, he said, that it is the Son of Man who has the authority to forgive sin. Now, the title Son of Man can mean, well, he's just a man, right? Son of a man. But the use of it here cannot mean that it's just a man, but a unique person, an agent of God who can forgive sins. And the clearest reference to the Son of Man is the one who receives authority from the Ancient of Days who is God in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. So this Son of Man will also come in the clouds to rule and bring vindication to God's people. He will come in glory and all peoples will serve Him. In other words, He is not just a man, but someone who deserves worship. As the Gospel goes, the title Son of Man is Jesus' most common way or title to refer to himself. Now, it might perhaps be used as an indirect claim of his identity to avoid conflict or misunderstanding, but nonetheless, it's still a sufficient claim to cause people to consider and decide 
whether he's more than just a healer or a teacher or even a prophet. People must decide, is Jesus who he says he is or he is not? We too are confronted with this question. Is Jesus a madman, a teacher, a healer, or God who can forgive sins? What happens when people meet Jesus? Firstly, sinners become servants of God. Secondly, the leper can be healed and restored. Thirdly, the paralytic can be healed and forgiven of his sin. Fourthly, sinners can be called to repentance. See, verse 27 tells us that Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, he was, he was probably collecting customs tax uh, for goods, right? the GST of that day. You know, the verb translated saw has the meaning of looked at or observed. And thus suggests that Jesus has singled out Levi and not just randomly. And in this encounter, Jesus is the one who sought him and initiated the conversation with him. And after Jesus called Levi to follow him, Levi left everything and followed Jesus. He had the same response as Peter and his friends. Leaving everything indicates a big change of character and priorities and perhaps even more so for Levi. Why? Because fishermen, if they left everything, they can go back to their trade, which some of them did after Jesus died. If everything doesn't work out, they can do that. But it will be a lot harder for tax collectors. And on top of that, he spent money to hold a great feast for a large group of his fellow tax collectors and sinners with Jesus as the VIP. Well, not many of us will throw a party when they lose their job, right? But Levi wanted his ex-colleagues to know Jesus as well. Now, you know, these kind of uh, public servants have no qualms and reservation in getting favours. They won't be caught up by the CPIB. But more seriously, Levi's generous response is evidence of how someone who benefited from the grace of God, may behave. Just like Peter, who would become a fisher of men, Levi would change from being a collector of taxes to be a collector of men for Christ. But here is where trouble began. If Jesus' claim to forgive sins bring about quiet discomfort, more is yet to come. There will be a rise of open opposition against Jesus from now on. As Jesus' identity and his mission became clearer, opposition rises. The Pharisees and their scribes then grumbled to the disciples saying, why, why do we eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now I read and watch a lot of World War II related stories and documentaries. And uh, I I read all of them and when the Axis power lost and they surrendered, the people would identify and drag out all the locals who were collaborators with the enemies, right? They would then be shamed in the public 
Those who the women who collaborated with the enemies, they will be slapped, they will have their hair cut in all sorts of funny shape. The men will be beaten up if not killed. They will not be welcomed back into the society again. And similarly, tax collectors then were seen as traitors because they were collecting taxes for the Roman conquerors. And furthermore, they tend to collect more than required. But unlike our honest IRAS officers, these tax collectors were not well-liked at all. I guess tax collectors will never be well-liked, right? But this group in particular, they were despised, they were shunned by everyone. But Jesus and his disciples were having table fellowship with them, with these traitors, with these corrupt people. See, no religious and pious people were supposed to have fellowship with this group of people. It is not a casual hello, shake hand, but, but sharing a meal together, which is a sign of friendship in their culture. Now, even today, you will find it a bit disconcerting if you keep seeing any of our pastors having a meal with dubious-looking people or, or those with bad reputations. But Jesus answered them in verses 31 to 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The sick and the sinners are those who recognize their lowly position before God and their need for Jesus to forgive them of their sins. Jesus' mission then is to come to seek and call sinners to repentance. And in this context, Jesus was referring to Levi and his, and his tech collector's friends. But on the other hand, those who are well, those who are righteous, they will not need Jesus. By that, Jesus was referring to the Pharisees and the scribes. The use of the word righteous is ironic, if not sarcastic. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were not righteous before God. However, they deemed themselves to be righteous because of their law-keeping behavior. They were self-righteous, but not truly righteous. As a result, they did not think that they needed to repent or for Jesus to forgive them of their sins. But in reality, they too desperately need their forgiveness like the tax collectors. Their pride and their confidence in their own self-righteousness prevented them from seeing their need, seeing who Jesus truly is and what he came to do. Now, what do all these accounts of people meeting Jesus mean for us? Many people we meet in life can make significant changes or impact in our lives. See, they could be our parents, our spouse, you know, our best friend, our teacher, our boss, our doctor, and in my case, the midwife who made a real significant need of us. However, nobody else apart from Jesus can forgive us of our sins. He's the one who can and has died for our sins. Only He can pay the penalty of our sins because He's the perfect 
God and man. And furthermore, Jesus is not only able to save, he is also willing to save. We learn about the depth of his grace and his compassion in his interaction with people. And Jesus was often the one who acted with initiative to seek sinners out. He brought them to a realization of their greatest need. He sought sinners out for repentance and went beyond what was needed at the risk of opposition. Now, there were times when uh, I had cold wars with my children. Now, it usually happens when we, you know, we uh, reach a stalemate in our arguments. We both think we are right and the other person is wrong, right? And more often than not, the truth is that both parties are at fault in some ways, but we won't back down and that resulted in us not talking to each other for a while, right? However, in our relationship with God, we are always the one in the wrong. We rebelled and sinned against our good and gracious Creator God. Yet God took the initiative to seek, save, and reconcile with His people. Jesus came to die and call sinners to repentance. Such is the depth of His grace and compassion. So my friends, no matter how deep and grievous our sin is, no matter how hated and despised we may be, Jesus is willing to forgive. There is no sin too great and no sinner too far that Jesus cannot forgive and restore. So come to Jesus. He will not turn you away. Now that also means that those who are Christians among us, we must be ready to associate with those who we may mistakenly think are too far or too sinful to be forgiven. Now this association does not mean we join in or approve any sinfulness. However, it means that we can extend the same grace and compassion as Jesus did. Just like how Christians are sinners transformed by Jesus to be servants, we pray and hope that those we associate with will also come to repentance and be transformed. But here is the caveat, the condition to forgiveness. Humility is required. At home, you know, uh, we always wipe our dining table after every meal, and rightly so. But when morning comes, the sun will shine into the house, and then I will see this layer of dust all over my dining table, and I will sigh. See, the sun rays expose every impurity and imperfection on my table. Likewise, for my car windscreen, it does not usually look very dirty to me. However, when I drive in the direction of the sun, all the dirt and the marks become so obvious. What I couldn't see previously does not mean they weren't there. They just needed to be reviewed. And that is what humility does for us. Humility allows us to recognize our depraved and desperate state before God. That was the common factor among all those who received help and forgiveness from Jesus in Luke chapter 5. 
when they admitted their need and they pleaded for help, Jesus was willing and able to help. But in contrast, those who were proud and self-righteous find their confidence in their good works, find their confidence in their religious standing. They would not see their need for Jesus. They would not see their need for forgiveness. As such, they would not repent and they would not turn to Jesus. So my friends, you may be uh, totally new to the Christian faith. Or you may be coming to church for years, even when you were a baby perhaps. But Jesus is still calling out to you to recognize your desperate need for forgiveness and to turn to him. He calls us to turn away, turn away from our own self-righteous ways and turn to him for forgiveness and a life of following him. And he is gracious and compassionate to help and receive us. So may we be humble to respond to his call rightly. Shall we all rise and pray together? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we, we come humbly before you, confessing that we are desperately in need of your grace and your forgiveness. Help us see the depth of our depravity and our rebellion against you. Open our spiritual eyes. Soften our hardened hearts to see the futility and the foolishness of our pride and our self-righteousness. We thank you, dear Jesus, that you came to call sinners like us to repentance and made forgiveness possible by dying on the cross. May we heed your call to turn away from sin and come humbly to receive the free forgiveness you offer. Transform our lives, dear Lord, so that we may be servants who will testify and glorify you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.